Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. Howdy folks and welcome to this episode of Grass Talk Radio. Today I'm going to do something a little different and I'm going to bring you an interview that I did with my good friend and you might say bluegrass colleague. His name is David Ellis. And he's from the Atlanta, Georgia area. I think of him as primarily a banjo player, but he also plays guitar, mandolin, fiddle, bass, dobro. In the interview, I neglected to mention, and he neglected it too, to mention that he's a really fine dobro player. And David has played in bands around the Atlanta area. He's he's done a lot of different things. He's even done a USO tour. Um, there's, he's been a very active musician in the Southeast over the last 30 years or so. Uh, David is the creator of a book you may have seen called The Dobro Primer, put out by Watch and Learn. Uh, it's a uh, beginning method book for learning to play the dobro and a DVD. Uh, he also has a series of flat-picking guitar video lessons that he did for Watch and Learn. I'll put some links to those things and also to his bio on the show notes page, so you can just go to grasstalkradio.com and go down to this episode, click on David Ellis, and you'll have all his links. He's a great guy to know. And back uh, probably 20 years ago, I was keeping a pretty good schedule of of students, I would have 10 to 15 students on the schedule at any given time. And I mentioned to David, I said, David, you play all this different stuff. You know, you should teach. Because sometimes I would get somebody who wanted to learn to play flat pick and bluegrass. And I really wasn't the best guy to teach that particular thing. And I was like, David, you should teach. And lo and behold, a year later, He's teaching at about three different music stores and doing private lessons in people's homes, and he's got about 50 students a week. It was really amazing. I mean, when David uh, gets started doing something, he is all in, 100%. But I think you'll like David. He's a very um, warm and friendly kind of guy, and if you've ever met him, you will always remember how how much he likes to share his knowledge with other people. He's a great guy. I love David Ellis, and I just wanted to introduce you to him with this little interview. So let's get to it. And to bring us into this interview, here's a little bit of a live recording of David and myself, just the two of us playing at a little place in College Park, Georgia called EFY. And we did a little um, one night only performance where David and I sat down and just played a bunch of stuff. We we brought pretty much all the instruments we owned, and we kept swapping instruments and just, just goofed around for the whole night. And I think this is a little bit of the start of Shady Grove.
David, I want to ask you, how did you first get interested in playing bluegrass? Probably the uh, probably in the very beginning, it would have been watching shows like Hee Haw, watching Grand Ole Opry on the weekends, uh, episodes of Beverly Hillbillies, Andy Griffith. You know, so this those. is like when you're a kid. Yeah, yeah, probably yeah. In the in that uh, age, you know, somewhere in the age eight to ten on up to like twelve or thirteen, because it kept building and kept building and kept building. How old are you? When were you born? Sixty-five. Nineteen sixty-five. Yeah. I am fifty-one. Well, that'll help people understand. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I, I can remember doing the same thing when I was a kid. Probably the first banjo player I ever saw on TV was probably on playing a tenor banjo. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think um, who was that guy? Uh, Dick Van Dyke's brother. Oh yeah, remember um, him? It was Jerry Van Jerry Dyke. Van Dyke. Yes, yeah, exactly. he was. Uh, it was really. Fast, super fast uh, tenor banjo player. And I don't remember what shows I saw him on, but I probably saw a tenor banjo player before I ever saw any bluegrass. Mm-hmm. But I saw Hee Haw and watched all that stuff. And that was stuff was was like a little worm eating in away at my brain. Exactly. And, I, and that would have been the, you know, watching people like, you know, back on, on Hee Haw, of course you had, uh, you know, Roy Clark and uh, Buck Owens. But you also had Roy, Buck Trent. Buck Trent too, was the yeah. one exactly, and I have you know, I still have my that old original that album of Buck Trent and Roy Clark doing the duo stuff. And of course, everybody that's once you become a banjo player, you know about Bobby Thompson, absolutely, who was right the, there in the house band, and he's right. playing that theme music, that fabulous, never-ending, cascading melodic thing exactly. of his, which is one of the reasons I between him. And listening to like Bela Fleck when you know I started listening to him and all all of that melodic stuff, which is why I tended, even though I love playing, you know, Scruggsy style banjo, that's why I still I'm still always kind of default to a melodic or chromatic type yeah. banjo riff. I think a lot of people who are our age really got turned on by that melodic stuff. Sure. Big time, and it still shows up in our playing. Well, a lot of this I, new crop is is a lot more straight ahead, more Earl like. Exactly. And when I first started learning how to play banjo and guitar, I was listening to my guitar influences were people like Norman Blake and Dan Creary who were doing a lot of fiddle tones. Yeah. So that real melodic style that was that's what I was drawn to. So you know, taking banjo lessons from Jim Adkins being a very melodic player that he is, that was leaning, that was kind of pushing me down that road even more. So you say you did take lessons, and I, I remembered that you that you took lessons from the duck because you used to mention it sometimes on sure. stage because yeah. you ended up in, in his band. Exactly. Well, I, I won't say that's where you ended up because you're you're not where you ended. You haven't ended yet, is what I'm saying. I um, how I old were you when you started, and what instrument did you start with? My dad took me when I well, I wanted to learn how to play a guitar. I, w- I wanted to be a rock star. So dad took me. He had he had a guitar. He had an acoustic guitar, like an old harmony or something. And he took me to reel-to-reel music in Stockbridge to buy me a guitar. But we sat there while a lady named Arlene Lively was across the room doing a, a lesson with somebody. And I had a guitar in my hand, and when she finished that lesson, she walked over and took the guitar out of my hand, put a banjo in my hand, and she said, you need to learn how to play the banjo. 
and she, and that, psychic. And the very next week, as I had my first banjo lesson, I actually had for maybe three or four months. I took lessons from Arlene. And how old were you? When I was that fourteen started? when I started. Fourteen. Fourteen. Yeah. I'm trying to think how old you were when I first started seeing you around. You were already playing in a band. I would probably you were probably sixteen. It was probably sixteen. Yeah. And I I saw you. Uh, and I remember the year because I had found, or my mandolin had found me, and I I bought a flat iron F5 artist in 1985, mm-hmm. probably in the late summer of 1985. And when I walked into that store in College Park, South Side of Atlanta, Jackson's Music Jackson, Store. Jackson. They had a little jam session sometimes on Saturday mornings over there, and I saw you over there with your dad. It yeah. might have been your mom, too. You oh, guys yeah. were picking. Mm-hmm. Probably with Jimmy Rutherford, maybe exactly. Tony Dutt. Yep. Yeah. That was pretty much the band Windy Creek. Exactly. And you were pretty young. I'm about 10 years older. And I had the mandolin that I had built with me. I had not I yet bought that mandolin. And I handed it to you. You were like, oh, you built that? Uh, mind if I try it out? Right. And I handed it to you. And you just proceeded to just wear that thing out. And I was like, <laughs> man, how'd this kid get so good at these? Give me that thing back. You know? I was like, man, this kid can pick. And, of course, I've you know, bumped into you a lot over the years. And we ended up being in two bands together for exactly. a long, long, long time. time. So... Let's talk about how you actually learned to play. And I know your mom and dad played, and you, yeah. it wasn't long till you guys had a band. Tell me a little about that. Yeah, we, uh, you know, I had, I got once I once I started getting, you know, fairly proficient on banjo and guitar. Um, dad wanted to learn how to play uh, rhythm guitar, and I don't know if mom actually wanted to play the bass or if it was kind of by default. I've talked about this yeah. in a previous episode. I've talked about people that are kind of forced into exactly. it. <laughs> <laughs> but what's funny is she, because dad worked um, worked at Ford and with Jim Rutherford, and Jim had been in you know countless you know rock bands and stuff over the years, and one thing led to another and. We all wound up together, but mom, like I said, she didn't really necessarily have an instrument she was playing, and bass was the default instrument. But she had no clue what to do, and we, we, my dad bought her a bass, and I sat and figured it out and figured out what to do, and then I taught her what to do. She never played fancy in any way, but rock solid, rock solid rhythm. I mean, she could, she was dead on on the beat. And that's all you really needed. It it is so true, um, especially with bass, mm-hmm. and especially with bluegrass. The if the less the bass player is noticed, probably the better they are. Yeah, and it's a very uh, you you can't have any ego if you're going to be a bluegrass bass player. You have to be Not willing to. The spotlight is never on you right. because if suddenly people notice you, it's probably because you're screwing up. <laughs> well, right. and and the, what was funny with her. After she played upright for for a couple of years, uh, they got an electric bass for her, and that was kind of about the time that I really started following uh, Newgrass Revival, and they had the tune, uh, the song Reach, and it had the really cool bass intro. So I sat down and learned that bass intro, and I taught it to Mom, and that was the fanciest thing she ever did. <laughs> I saw you guys play that. Your band was called Windy Creek. Yes, right. Mm-hmm. 
And Tony Duck was playing mandolin. You were playing banjo. Right. Your mom and dad. And mm. I think Rutherford on guitar. Exactly. Maybe at that time. Sure. And it was at the old College Park Auditorium. I think it was the WRFG Peach Blossom Festival. I think so. I don't remember what year, but it's probably 86. Possibly so. 86, 87. I was in Cedar Hill. We were playing that same festival. And I remember walking in the back of the auditorium. And I think they had Jim and Jesse was headlining that year and the Johnson Mountain Boys. I remember, yeah, I'm pretty sure Johnson Mountain Boys were there, yeah. It was great to be able to, you know, here we are upstarts in this and be able to go to these festivals and meet these people and play on the same stage. But that's a whole other topic. But I, I remember standing at the back of the auditorium and watching you guys play that thing. I was first just knocked out by Tony's mandolin playing. Oh because when he played that, Sandbush break. I mean, he nailed it note for note. Exactly. And you weren't bad either. <laughs> one, one of the things I always said about you, and this is this is a good question for you, and I think I've asked you this a number of times before, and I've asked him that and a lot of other people, is that you were really fast. I mean, fast. Speed apparently was never one of your problems. Yeah. And I'm just curious... That's not true for everybody. A lot of people struggle right. to get faster and faster. And I've been one of those people my whole life. There was a, I would hit a wall. And right. I, it's poor technique. And, you know, I was always trying to correct it and solve that problem. And you never seemed to have that problem. I mean, it was just go, man, go. And I think it was <laughs> Rutherford that drove that. If you played with Jim, if you played, played so bluegrass fast. with Jim Rutherford, you were required to be able to play at like 180 beats a minute or something. I mean, it was re, it, you had well, to be How able to play. do you when you have a student today and you teach a lot of people? Right. You've taught a lot of people over the years who is struggling with speed. What do you tell them? What how? What do you see as the what's what's going wrong when they can't go fast? Typically, I find it's right hand and left hand. You you have to stay close to the strings, but you have to build that up right from the beginning. If you develop a habit where you're, like if your right hand tends to kind of lay off the string maybe an inch or so, and then you just are constantly going down to the string, you've got that inch of dead space before you ever hit the string. And then on the left hand, you've got the same issue. You've got people... Who you, they play the riff and then their fingers stretch all the way out yeah. instead of staying close to the string. Well, that makes sense. I mean, it takes longer to move a finger one inch than it does to move it one millimeter. Exactly. But how do you um, how do you get such good volume and and power, shall we say, to the thing Jeff Howalt's always talk about how to put power in your banjo playing when you're making such small motions. Well, I think, but I think you, I think when you're making, when you're, when you're, when you minimize how much, how much space it takes to go from where your pick is to the string, if it's just that millimeter or just slightly more than that, you, then all of that is force that you're putting into it. Whereas if you're an inch or so away and then coming down on the string, then you've got that inch is is not really doing. You're not really making a connection with the string in any way. So I think that you lose a little bit of your momentum by the time you hit the string. Ah, that's interesting. That that is interesting. I wish you told me that 25 years ago, man. 
It'll save me a lot it's of grief. It's the same thing with flat picking. I mean, that's and that's that's the that's the way I've always approached it. Well, you know, when you see, if you take ten great players and you put them in the room, you see everything. I mean, you see those people that have that super precise, compact motion, like Tony Rice. Right. When you watch that right hand, I mean, it's laser beam focus. He is not flailing around. Mm-hmm. But then you put him next to Doc Watson. And Doc is pumping that thing like a, like a, you know, an old water pump. He's working from the elbow, a lot right. like the way Sam Bush plays a mandolin. Exactly. And I think that and you and see everything. And that's one of the things I tell when I'm teaching. I don't teach to play that way, but I believe by default, Sam and Doc, when they learned how to play, that was what how they learned, and they learned how to compensate for it in what in in whatever way. So they are in the minority of people who can actually pull that style off. Yeah, that that makes sense. As I think everybody's built a little differently. Sure, that's th- there is a set of of common principles that are generally a good idea for most people to follow, but. Sometimes you got to bend the rules a little bit. I, I don't. I would never say that to suggest that. Oh, if that's just too difficult for me, I can't do that. So I play this way mm-hmm. because that may be why you'll never become any better at what you're doing. Yeah. So, oh, do you think? Um, do you think it's possible? I, I did an episode not too long ago about can you teach an old dog new tricks, and I talked about the difficulty of making changes to your playing late in the game. Right. Like you've been playing 15 years, it's a lot harder to make a change than than at the beginning where you don't have these ingrained bad habits or good habits. Right. But for that person that's sitting there maybe at a at a later stage, can you think of anything that might help somebody, not necessarily just about speed, but that would help somebody become a better musician? player, technician, whatever, that is maybe something that's easy to do, that doesn't require going back to the beginning, totally starting over and relearning from ground zero. You know, do you have any thoughts on like, what if a guy's just really stumbling and just not making any more progress? What would you suggest they do short of go back to school and start over. Yeah, I don't think it's I don't think it's necessary to go all the way back. In fact, I'll give you the a real quick example. I have a, a student, a banjo student who is 78 years old. He's been taking lessons from me for 5 years and in the last year or two he finally has kind of leveled out and he can play fairly smooth on some things. But he recently had rotator cuff um, surgery, so he's been not he hasn't been able to pick up a banjo for 8 weeks. Had his first lesson again yesterday, and what we did was he knows you know thing all the you know all the roll patterns and everything and many variations of them and everything. But what we started off with yesterday was we went back and looked at every one of the common roll patterns and a couple of variations of each one of them. And what he's going to do is we we went back and we. Basically started, like I said, not from scratch. I didn't have to teach him the roll patterns, but we went back and reviewed how to hold the hand, uh, spacing from the pick to the string, where to hold those fingers and everything, and then went back and went through a few exercises where he's using a metronome at, say, starting off at 60 beats a minute, 80 beats a minute, uh, to 100, 120, and building back up, but starting off with a pick stroke per click, 
and moving that up. And then we go back and he maybe drops it back down to 60 or 80, but then does two pick strokes per right, click right. and continues to build that up so that what, by the time we get back in the next couple of lessons where he's re, basically reintroducing some of the songs he's already been playing, the right hand will be back in the groove, but he also will probably find that his accuracy will be better. He is maybe his tempo, you know, his, you know, his ability to play faster will be will be there again a little bit quicker. And I would say to somebody who might be struggling with something or maybe wanting to change their style, that maybe you have you have to have the discipline to say, okay, for two weeks or a month, I'm not going to be playing all these tunes I've been playing. I'm going to go back and I'm purposely going to work on those particular things. Yeah, it's you, a lot of that's, discipline. That's a good point, and that's something that, well, I've been guilty of myself. Uh, sometimes, figure out something that I want to improve or change about my playing, and then set out to do it. I'm, you know, I will each day for one hour. I'm going to do this, this, and this, mm-hmm. and then a week later, I've forgotten all about it. I'm sure. not doing it. So maybe the, the truth might be that it's maybe not that difficult to make changes. If a person would actually do it, sure. it's kind of like going on a diet. It's real easy to be on a diet for two days. Easily. Any fool can do that, but can you do it for three months? Right. And if you do, you will see results. Maybe even an old dog, you know, could reform I, I, their abilities by going back to basics. Absolutely. I feel very strongly about that, but it is a discipline thing. I don't think it's, I think for, by and large, I think once somebody pretty much has gotten into the groove of playing, I think they basically know what to do, but if you want to change something, it doesn't matter whether it's playing banjo or, like you said, whether it's trying to lose 20 pounds. It's the discipline part of it of making sure that you say, okay, for this period of time, I'm going to do these things. Yeah. Well, I've got this old theory that let's say you've got a habit and you're trying to break that habit and replace it with a new, improved habit Mm -hmm. that... If every time you do it the old way, you've just brought it back right. fully to the forefront. And in other words, you have to completely, absolutely, forevermore stop doing that thing. Like if you're going to quit smoking, you can quit smoking for five years, but if you light up, you're a smoker again. Sure. You know, so that bad habit, you're slowly pushing into the background, but every time you do it the old way, you've brought it a lot closer to the front again, and it, you got to start over, and it's hard again. Yeah. And that it could be many years. And it, and why I'm saying this is uh, pertinent to myself in particular, uh, I found that if I wanted to change something about the way I was playing the mandolin, my right hand primarily, I was trying to work on not touching the top while I played. Right. I felt like that was slowing me down. And I'd done it for years because that's the way I learned to play the banjo. And I just assumed that's how you did it for a ba- for a mandolin. Sure. Put your fingers on the top and pick. Well, as I discovered, I thought that for me that wasn't working. So I would practice Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, playing everything nice and slow and doing it perfectly without touching. But then I had a gig on Friday night. And I'd show up for the gig and we got to play everything full steam ahead, just like we did last week and on Saturday, too. 
and I could not do it yet the the new way, so I'd go back the old way right. just for one night. It was as if I had made no improvements. I'd you know start over the next Monday morning trying to do it the new way. You've got to absolutely quit. So I I often thought the only way I'm ever going to get any better is to quit the band <laughs> because I can't go out there and play Foggy Mountain Breakdown at 150 beats a minute the new way yet, and right. they won't slow down enough to let me do it the improved way. Sure. So, so maybe somebody's lucky if they're not in a band and they're trying to make changes. Yeah, I, mean, I think that was that makes a lot of sense. Uh, Dave, I know you a lot. Of, I I think of you as a banjo player. I've always thought of you as a banjo player. But you're a lot more than that. What all do you play? I, I know probably half of them because <laughs> all the bluegrass stuff, but it wouldn't surprise me if you pulled out a set of bagpipes and was like, <laughs> I didn't know he could do that. You're pretty amazing in terms of all the different instruments. Can you rattle off all the instruments that you play? I would say proficiently banjo, guitar, mandolin, uh, fiddle, up to maybe like a, I mean, you know, You should say you're a fiddle player. You were actually the fiddle player in Cedar Hill. Yes. When I left the band in that time period, you were our fiddle player, so don't lie about that. You are a fiddle player. Well, I am. I mean, I play, I play well. I just, you know, like I said, I'm, I try to, try not to overstep what I can do, but, uh, You're humble. And then, uh, (laughs) humble day. And then, you know, pretty much any kind of, you know, traditional bluegrass or. Do you play drums? um, I was always curious. No, no, no drums. I can probably do you a little djembe or something. How about piano? You play keyboard stuff? No piano. Any wind instruments like saxes and stuff? No, just my, just the, you know, the standard recorder that I used to learn (laughs) how to play in middle school. (laughs) The tonette. (laughs) The tone flute. A little bit of ukulele. Did, did you play in band in high school or no. in school? I did, and that probably screwed me up no, for a long time. No, actually, it did help me because the one of the great things I learned from band that was learning to read standard music See, notation. That's what I wish I was very learned better. I'm I'm very slow at standard notation, and I also learned the concept of working together as a group, right? Doing your part. Yeah. What I didn't learn was how to practice. They never really explained that. I, I don't think anybody ever told you. It was more about how much you practice. You know, you need to practice an hour a day. Exactly. That's standard line. And as long as your mom heard you in, you know, in the other room tooting that horn, then you practice. If, if it had been more taught more, in which I think you know, both of us probably you know, in teaching we probably do the same thing. But it's more about the focus than it is the time, and it's also more about the regularity. If somebody comes in and says. I practiced for three hours on Saturday, but I didn't touch it again until next Thursday, then they basically wasted three hours as far as I'm concerned. But if it's 20 minutes of working on G, C, A, and D, and you do it every week, every day for 20, 30 minutes, you're going to know those chords, and then you can move on to the next group of chords. it's, it's, It's the regularity and it's the focus rather than it is... I, pr- I touched my instrument for an hour and a half. Yeah, I've got this little theory that I believe in that when you're practicing, it's, you know, you're using your conscious mind to train your subconscious mind. And that if you, after a practice session, even though you're not still, you don't have the instrument in your hands, maybe you're at work mm-hmm. or you're driving or you're sleeping, I think your subconscious mind is still processing no, what I, you did. I would totally agree. And that... If you refresh that every day or every day or two or twice a day, 
even in small amounts, your subconscious keeps churning away at it, practicing. Have you ever, have you ever, um, like been laying in bed, actually playing your instrument in your mind? Sure. You, I, I do that all the time. Yeah. I, especially I've started working on playing the dobro here recently. Right. And I know you're a dobro player too. I took it up as a brand new instrument almost exactly two years ago. And I catch myself, I'll work on something for a while, maybe put a track on, and I'm just playing the same solo over and over and over. And when I'm laying in bed, I'm still playing that thing in my mind. Absolutely. It's the same thing that I I used to, I worked in retail for nine years, and you would have to do inventory every year. And when you would do inventory, the company I worked for, we did it for literally for two and a half to three days straight. So you, once you showed up at the store on the day of inventory beginning, you didn't go home until inventory was complete. So it might be about two full days, sometimes three, that you would do. And when you would go home, for two or three days, you I might wake up in the middle of the night and I'd be counting inventory from the store. Yeah, I, It's the same principle. When I first moved down here to Americas, there was a guy in town. He was the only guy I knew in Sumter County, Georgia. And I knew him because I'd seen him at bluegrass festivals. And he has a golf course. He used to have a bluegrass festival at his RV park and golf course. His name's Charlie. Well, I didn't have nothing to do. And Charlie needed a guy to mow. Right. To mow the rough at the golf course. So I'm, I said, yeah, I'll do that. So I went down there and I would mow eight hours straight on this on this golf course and they had these hills that you go up the hill and down the hill and up the hill and down the hill and up the hill and down the hill all day long except for a little lunch break and I can remember just laying in bed and I'm mowing (laughs) I am mowing I cannot get this mowing out of my mind you know so maybe that happens with music too well listen you've taught a whole bunch of people over the years let me ask you this last thing what is the oddest request or maybe the strangest thing that's ever happened with a student. I told a story not too long ago in a podcast about this guy from England who came to me and wanted to take banjo lessons, had never played a banjo in his life, and he said he needs to play dueling banjos, and he's performing it in four weeks in London at his brother's wedding, and, you know, here's here's your... 80 bucks now teach me how to do it and i was like what you can't look what's the strangest or the oddest thing you can think of because you've had a lot of people come in i'm sure you've had some real real interesting people like i have over the years well i've had even recently as a couple of months ago i I had a banjo student that showed up and had never touched banjo and and that was their first request of course was to learn how to play dueling banjos but i had to back them off and say okay We'll get to that one. But as far as the, the strangest one is probably about five or six years ago, I had a guitar student who showed up and he said, I'm getting married in a month and I want to sing at my wedding. I will sing to my wife at the wedding. And I said, okay, so how long have you been playing guitar? He said, well, I've never, I've never owned a guitar. I'm, this, today is the first one. <laughs> so in a month's time... Hey, that's easier than dueling banjos. <laughs> but in a month's time, we we learned the chords to a Brad Paisley song, and he learned 
how, I wrote everything out, taught him how to follow the, the sheet, and he learned only the chords to that song, and he learned the words. And the week before his wedding, we got together, and he was able to pull it off in the, in, in the uh, lesson. And he sang, and he was able to change through the chords, and we did a real simple rhythm. And unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to go to the wedding, but a friend of mine went, and they said that he... He got to that point, and he was he said he stumbled a little bit, but for the most part, he made it all the way through it, and he played all his chords and everything. And to my knowledge, he hasn't touched the guitar since. <laughs> that is a testament to you as a teacher, David. <laughs> hey, David, I want to thank you for coming down here to my little farm I, in I America's Georgia and sharing some of your your <laughs> musical well, life with the audience of the podcast. Absolutely, Thanks. I've enjoyed it, and hopefully, we'll do another one soon. We will. Yeah. Thank you.